everybody, and welcome to another edition of Uprising Uncut, a podcast hosted by me, Sonali Kohatkar. My day job is the host of a program simply entitled Uprising that airs on Pacifica Radio in California. And this podcast is where I just kind of riff on stories of the week in a very unscripted, informal manner, unlike my very scripted and fairly formal radio show. Um, It's something I do usually after the sun has gone down, usually with a glass of wine in front of me. And uh, although I forgot my wine this week. And um, it's usually a place for me to express Uh, ideas, thoughts, emotions, notions, concepts that I just don't have the chance to bring up during my daily radio program. Well, this week was an interesting week. Um, The GOP had yet another debate. My goodness, do we have to have, what are they, weekly debates, it feels like. I think the the last debate before this one was either one week or two weeks before uh, when CNBC held its um, GOP or sponsored a GOP debate. This week on Tuesday evening, we had another debate um, sponsored by Fox Business News and the Wall Street Journal. And this was, of course, much more to the liking of the GOP candidates um, whose field has gotten whittled down to a smaller and smaller field, thank goodness, because it started out pretty damn big. Um, And, you know, the fact that a conservative media outlet hosted it or two conservative media outlets hosted it was probably um, much more to the liking of the candidates. I did not watch it. I really cannot bring myself to sit through these debates so early in the game. And when they have candidates who are so belligerent and, you know, out of the realm of reality, they, you know, <laughs> they are not even in a faith-based world, but I should say in a fantasy-based world. And of course, I'm talking about people like Donald Trump and Ben Carson and to a lesser extent, some of the other conservative crazies. Um, So I watched the highlights, a few of them, and I did a lot of reading of the debate because, you know, given my job, I do have to cover it on the show and I did do just that. Um, And and all I wanted to talk about during the, the podcast wasn't the substance of the debate, um, minuscule as that is, but the fact that um, because Donald Trump and Ben Carson are running in this race, primary race, I should say, and because they are drawing such ridiculously large poll numbers, journalists are forced to take them seriously. We have to cover Ben Carson and Donald Trump. We have to say their names. I don't even like saying their names because I don't even like acknowledging them as serious candidates because they are running for the highest office in this country, arguably the most, not even arguably, just straight up, the most power, politically powerful position in the world given the U.S.'s supremacy, uh, ongoing supremacy. And they are just stupid stupid men. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Stupid and calculating and manipulative, angry, old men. And I don't like having to take them seriously. But I have to because 
lots of other people are taking them seriously, which would make me extremely depressed about the state of this country. But I sort of get that way on a daily basis anyway, having to cover the news. But um, it's really sad to have to take Donald Trump seriously. So it's this interesting conundrum. And I don't know if other journalists are feeling that way. And it doesn't seem that that many media, um, at least those in the mainstream media, feel that way. Because if you look at the amount of free publicity that Donald Trump has gotten from corporate media, it is essentially, it it seems as though the corporate media love him. And, And that goes to the heart of why the corporate media are the way they are. The corporate media exist to make profits and to drive up ratings because that makes profits, that maximizes profits. And a crazy person like Donald Trump gives good ratings, gets good ratings. People tune in because of the crazy. They tune in to watch the insanity unfold. And so that's why NBC, of course, loved the idea of having Donald Trump hold Saturday Night Live last weekend. And that's why four or five Sunday talk shows featured him as a guest the very next day. And he was then able to capitalize that going straight into the debate on Tuesday, a day and a half later. And he has basically gotten this enormous amount of television exposure without, you know, spending any money. And this is a a person who boasts of of being a billionaire um, and self-funding his own campaign. But he doesn't really have to spend a dime if NBC and, and all of these outlets are simply handing him airtime for free. And and that just really pisses me off because this whole idea that these candidates should have you know equal access to the media is really out the door to begin with so early on in the game. Um, and, and why? Why? Why should Donald Trump host SNL? Well, except, of course, because probably tons of people tuned in to watch the circus. So, so because the media relies on profits, because they like to drive ratings when there's insanity on television, that feeds into having the you know, source of the insanity come dangerously close to the Oval Office. It is a vicious and very, very frightening circle. Um, The other much, much more important news, actually, which I should have led with, but since this isn't a formal newscast, I'm not really organizing these thoughts very well in my head. Um, The other much more interesting and important news is a revolt on campuses across the United States against racial injustice. Very, very exciting news. Um, The epicenter of it, of course, um, has been the University of Missouri, where uh, black student groups um, had their long-standing fight, long-standing meaning going back at least a year, year and a half, fight against campus administration over racism on campus. When they had that fight be buoyed by black athletes joining in this happened last weekend black athletes football players like 30 black football players at the university of missouri campus said um yeah we are in solidarity with these black student groups who've been on hunger strike who've launched boycotts of the campus stores um because we too understand and experience the very racism they're talking about and we're just not going to play any more football games till the president of the university resigns and tim wolf the president did resign on monday it was pretty amazing to see this 
very important, effective revolt um, on the campus of the University of Missouri, the solidarity that the students showed one another, the power that they expressed and then realized that they had, um, it's really it's really important because it empowers them to go on the offensive and take on even more actions. And, you know, people have been claiming um, and, and pointing to instances of, of very, very serious racial discrimination on that campus since um, as per the guest that I had, Christina Mislan, on our show earlier this week since um, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson. And of course, a couple of white students uh, arrested for um, inciting racial hatred and making racist threats um, online. Uh, two young white male students were arrested, and um, I'm so glad that they were arrested. Um, and their faces, their mugshots shared online. I saw this great infographic about um, about you know the, these racist threats coming from these um, male white kids. Um, and it said, black students get upset, they hold a hunger strike. White students get upset, they threaten violence. And that just about sums it up, you know, and, and we need to see it in those terms because if the tables were turned, you know that there would be so much um, kind of freaking out in the media over black students getting violent if black students did indeed threaten violence, uh, even when... Um, black folks don't threaten violence. It's imagined as we've had in um, uh, the news recently when cops and their defenders have accused Black Lives Matter of inciting violence against them when in fact all indicators show that violence against cops is going down and even those cops who were supposedly killed by people inspired by Black Lives Matter, at least one of them um, as I think I talked about in last week's podcast, it turned out he staged his own suicide. So um, so Missouri is really exciting. So what's even more exciting is that it's, it's spreading. It seems to be spreading. There have been solidarity rallies and marches and events um, around campuses across the country. The New York Times and the BBC covered it. Um, and it's really exciting. Um, here in Southern California, where I am, USC and UCLA held solidarity marches. And actually, incidentally, a somewhat related, I would imagine, um, incident took place at Claremont McKenna College in Southern California. This is, you know, uh, part of a liberal group of colleges um, where the uh, dean of Claremont McKenna resigned over statements that I'm not sure if it's a male or female dean. I did not do my homework on that, but um, over statements that he or she made to uh, students in response to an inquiry that said something to the effect of students of color not fitting into the Claremont McKenna College mold. And, you know, college was never meant for people of color, right? I mean, we should just kind of acknowledge that. The, the centers of higher learning, universities, this is where people obtain really, you know, serious education, important education, education that, that, that focuses where your life will go. It is the premier place where you obtain an education that at some point, if you're lucky, will give you some power in society. College equals education equals power. College was never meant for people of color. 
It was never meant for poor people. Maybe it was meant for poor whites because the United States is based on this idea of a meritocracy that if you work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can make anything of yourself and become rich. It was definitely not meant for blacks, for African-Americans. It was not meant for Latinos and immigrants and undocumented folks. It was not meant for people of color in general. And the fact that today the country is becoming so much more diverse and college campuses are naturally becoming just as diverse, um, turns campuses into these flashpoints, into these centers of racial tension that reflect societal racial tension. Um, but you know, you put a whole bunch of very educated, self-aware, young, and 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 idealistic people in together in one place, you're going to get revolt, as we, you know we've seen on college campuses. Um, throughout history, all over the world, so it's exciting um, that uh, that that these things are happening, and I'm certainly going to be keeping my eye on this and seeing how it unfolds. This is one of those instances where I wish I had so much more time, where I wish my kids didn't take up so much of my time, where I wish I had a huge paid staff that uh, would enable me to take my recorders and go to these campuses and. And, and cover them in person. I wish I could do that. Um, so that was probably the most exciting news of the week. Uh, the other main thing this week was Veterans Day, of course, bang in the middle of the week on a Wednesday. And um, it's so interesting, <laughs> just before, before, I want, before I talk about the significance of Veterans Day, um, the thing that impacts me personally is the fact, and I'm sure impacts many, many other parents, is the fact that schools are closed on Veterans Day. But most people, most working people, have to work. Not all. I believe banks might be closed. Um, and of course, school teachers and government offices are likely closed. But most everybody else has to work. On Wednesday, Veterans Day, why can't Veterans Day be another Monday three-day holiday just to give people a break, right? That would be nice. Um, <laughs> but we can't have people having more than one three-day weekend per month, can we? Actually, October doesn't have any three-day weekends, so Veterans Day would make the perfect three-day weekend. We'd have Labor Day in September, Veterans Day in October, Thanksgiving in November, and Christmas and New Year's in December. Now, that would be a very nice fall leading into winter season because, of course, Americans just don't get enough time off. Um, but so, yeah, that was just kind of annoying that um, that that we could, um, you know, that, that we have to deal with these things. So my kids were home this week. Um, on Wednesday and it drove me crazy and I had to um, play what's called an evergreen show on my show because I had to take care of them. But of course, the thing about Veterans Day is we're supposed to be, that's the day we're supposed to remember veterans. We're supposed to remember the brave men and women who, quote, fought to protect our freedom, who um, we are supposed to, quote, honor for their service. Now, I have nothing against veterans at all, personally. People who've served in war, I usually, I mean, first of all, have immense empathy for them and feel sorry for them. And, and well, no, I take that back. Not, I don't feel sorry for them. I feel compassion. That's the word. 
compassion because they've likely become traumatized by their own actions. And I, I feel compassion even for the most power-hungry, bloodthirsty, racist, crazy soldiers who signed up so that they can go and kill some quote-unquote ragheads in Iraq. I feel sorry for them because they clearly have will be at some point if they aren't already experiencing some horrific trauma and it was ignorance that led them to war in the first place and it's just so childish though to see people just trot out these meaningless phrases that say you know veterans thank you for your service we honor you for for your service service really i mean this isn't charitable work these aren't people who went and built schools and dug wells. Some of them actually probably did because of the blurring of the lines between military um, uh, work and, and, and aid work, which in turn endangers aid workers. But that's a tangent and another story. Um, but most soldiers don't go to Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. to dig wells, build schools. Um, uh, and if they do that alongside their fighting work, then they're they're making life harder for aid workers. Most go to kill people. I'm, I mean, I'm if, just sorry to say that, but straight up, that's what most people, I mean, why, why else would you sign up for the military? Y- you would, if you had a problem with killing people, you wouldn't sign up for the military. You sign up for the military because you realize at some point you're gonna kill people and you're okay with that or you're excited about that. Um, many, of course, sign up to go to the military because of free school, but they still have to acknowledge somewhere within themselves that at some point they're likely to be involved directly or indirectly in killing other people. So I cannot thank somebody for their service of killing people in my name. Um, And the other thing is, I mean, uh, the liberal line, the standard liberal line on Veterans Day is we need to take care of our veterans. We need to better fund VA, the Veterans Administration. We need to better fund medical care for veterans, um, help them with their job, you know, with, with unemployment, with homelessness, and all of the things that veterans suffer and disproportionately from. They do suffer higher rates than average of things like joblessness, homelessness. Uh, even suicide rates are significantly higher than among the general public. And yes, it's true, absolutely we need to do that. But not because they're special because they went to fight in war, but because they're vulnerable people in our society. We should be paying special attention to them just as much as we pay special attention to single women of color who are, single mothers who are women of color who are, you know, have have just as disproportionate statistics in terms of homelessness, poverty, et cetera. And the other thing is, we should be talking about why we send them to war in the first place. Yes, Veterans Day is the perfect day to talk about that. Why do we have veterans in the first place? Can we please get rid of the idea of veterans by getting rid of the idea of sending people to war to begin with? Of course not. That would be way too <laughs> way too radical, revolutionary. But But we do need to think about these things. I got the chance to speak to an amazing veteran this week. Um, Someone who thought deeply and hard about his actions, who regrets them, who is trying to make up for them, and who is clearly a thoughtful, intelligent person who is trying to be uh, a credit to society. And I was so excited to meet this person. I didn't meet him in person. Um, His name is Hart Vyjus. I did a Veterans Day interview with him. We talked late on Monday night um, and on on Skype on my uh, home recording studio and um and it aired on wednesday on kpfa in berkeley 
and um, this is a man who was one of the first to go to the to, to serve in the Iraq war in 2003 he signed up he was gung-ho he was you know he had this warrior mentality he said he showed up to the recruitment office on September 12th the, uh, 2001 the day after the 9-11 attacks and he you know thought he was going to help get rid the world of evil and when he got to Iraq and served I believe he said he served just under a year there although he was in the military for about three years or two year, two or three years, um, he realized what he was actually doing and that the Iraqis were just ordinary people like him. And it haunts him. It was a really poignant and, and heartfelt conversation. Um, and I could feel, you know, in his pauses, even though I wasn't in front of him, I could feel um, just a, a, a get a small glimpse, I should say, into what he's clearly struggling with every day. I mean, even though he has been out of the military and it's been 10 years since he served uh, in uh, as a combat um, soldier, he is haunted. Um, and he talked about having to exercise self-control every single day that if he didn't that his self-destructive behavior would would catch up to him. I I didn't ask him to go into the details of what that behavior might be, but but it was sad, and I you know I felt so um, I felt sad to hear that he uh, struggled with that. But at the same time, I think it's a necessary penance because he basically admits that he engaged in the kind of behavior that resulted in the deaths and the suffering of of other people. Um, so today he does counter recruitment work in high schools, which is great. I mean, good for him for doing that, for going and talking to students who are considering joining the military and giving them another perspective. And he told me how he, the, the, when he talks to these kids, he can see their faces, the expressions on their faces changing as he talks to them, which is just wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful experience to... To, to influence minds and, you know, influence them for good things. So um, I wrote about him and um, uh, and that conversation for, for Truth Dig this week. So if you get a chance, even though Veterans Day is over, by the time you're listening to this, um, do do give it a, a read if you get a chance uh, on truthdig.com where I write a weekly column. Um, but, you know, this is one of the reasons why I love my job. I love getting to meet people like this. All right, so in the last uh, six or seven minutes of the podcast, I wanted to talk about um, something fun. So last week's podcast, I talked about how much I despised the TV show Royals that I started watching. It was like, watched like three episodes. And um, this week I watched, or should I say binge watched, a really, really cool show. The first time in a really long time that I not only felt entertained by a TV show, but also felt, you know, vindicated for thinking the way I do about standard network TV. So I'm talking, if you haven't already guessed, about Aziz Ansari's new series on Netflix called Master of None. Aziz Ansari, of course, is the very petite, uh, chocolate-skinned, South Indian-American man um, actor from Parks and Recreation who plays the bizarrely named Tom Haverford <laughs> on that show. And um, I, I've always, you know, I, I love watching him on that show. He's, he's a hilarious character. And then he comes out out of the blue, and he's a stand-up comic too. He comes out out of the blue with this 
series on Netflix and the way, of course, Netflix does, they'll release an entire season all at once um, that just encourages the binge watchers among us. And I started watching Master of None and I, I pretty much feel like I didn't stop for like two days. All I did, two or three days. I think I've watched it in like two or three days, the entire first season. And basically, if you haven't yet watched it and you might want to you know, stop listening if you're worried about spoilers because I might have some spoilers coming up. Um, it's a show that basically, you know, first of all, obviously features a brown man as a central character. But it's not just him. I mean, he doesn't Mindy Kaling it. It's not just him surrounded by mostly white people. It's He has a pretty diverse crew. And it's yet another group of friends in New York scenario, except this time, there's a TV show that actually reflects the racial diversity of real New York City. So in his little crew, his posse that he hangs out with is a uh, ludicrously tall, heavyset white guy who um, just offsets Aziz Ansari's small stature hilariously. There's an African-American lesbian and an Asian guy. That's the crew. Um, and it works. It's cool. I mean, even though it sounds unlikely, it just it works. And um, it's just him, his trials and travails uh, of this of this, you know, he plays a struggling actor in New York. So I'm assuming much of it is sort of autobiographical. Um, and uh, there's just such there's two really important episodes in the series. One is an episode about his parents and being a uh, second generation immigrant to the United States and how his parents, um, you know, emigrated to the United States from India, what they went through, him and his um, East Asian friend uh, essentially reflect on their own parents' journey from their countries of origin to the United States, why they came, what they did, and how these, you know, these young guys realized how little they appreciate um, what their parents did for them. Um, and uh, there has few vignettes of, of the experiences, the early experiences of these immigrant parents when they come to the United States and how they're treated. And I just, it was great. I loved that. And, and in uh, Aziz Ansari's case, he actually had his real parents play his parents on TV, which was cute. The second and even more important episode that I liked of the entire series uh, of the season was um, about Indians on television. And just the first few minutes of this sh uh, episode are fantastic uh, it's a montage it's a um, medley of clips from popular culture tv shows and movies you know for over the last several decades all the sort of stereotypical scenes featuring indians you know apu from from um the simpsons uh that racist character from indiana jones with the turban um peter sellers and the party who basically plays an indian in brown face ashton kutcher's pop chips commercial where he uh, does a terrible um and an offensive indian accent wearing a turban and and a, you know a costume uh so so it's this great montage and when you see it all at once you're like whoa this is intense, and and the stereotypes that exist of Indians in pop culture are are just really fucking racist. I'm sorry. There's no other way to put it. So um, Aziz Ansari's character Dev Shah plays 
an actor who's trying to find work in New York City and all the roles he gets or many of the roles he gets require him or ask of him to basically put on a fake thick Indian accent because Aziz Ansari's character is born in the U.S. his accent is American and of course we can't very well have that can't have an Indian American with an American accent on TV or the movies. Um, So he takes on this issue and he takes it on really well. He does a really good job of tackling it. Um, And and what I've really been liking seeing is that he is doing press for this series on talk shows, in op-eds, in interviews, where he brings up race and racial diversity and racial representation on television front and center in his conversations about this TV show. Clearly, he has an agenda. I mean, why the hell not? Why are actors so freaking scared of having a political agenda? I mean, just wear your politics on your sleeve. Be confident of them because if you feel like you're in the right and you do a good enough job convincing people and people actually get influenced by you, and you've done something good in this world. The right wing thing like this. Ben Carson probably thinks like this. <laughs> anyway, uh, so he's talking straight up to, you know, Stephen Colbert about the fact that there have been, uh, in his words, to paraphrase what Aziz Ansari said, a bajillion white guys who've hosted talk shows, late night talk shows, such as Stephen Colbert, and very, very few Indian Americans who've been the lead characters in network TV shows and sitcoms. So he's he's just um, coming straight out and talking about the fact that his TV show is an antidote to the whiteness of television and the whiteness of 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 filmmaking and movie making movies and tv in general so good for him um and and in general by the way it's just a really well done tv show there's just the pacing i really like the pacing of the show it's 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 a little bit slower moving than most tv shows it kind of you know scenes just linger a little bit longer it's not this fast-paced overstimulating um in your face extra clever you know trying so hard to be clever with every sentence type of show there are moments in the stories that play out and I appreciate that I like that I like a good tv show so I highly recommend Aziz Ansari's Master of None on Netflix um to wrap up as I'm seeing the 30 minute mark approach um I my art show last weekend was awesome I had the opening night of my um very first solo art show. I'm an artist and it was so amazing. About a hundred people came through this teeny tiny little coffee shop, Sidewalk Cafe, which is where the exhibit is still up. Um, it's in, in uh, Pasadena. You can look it up, Sidewalk Cafe. It's in Hens Teeth Square. And the opening night was last Friday and so many of my friends and colleagues and you know, people in my life and people that I've never met, listeners. Some of my listeners showed up because they saw that I posted it to Facebook. Um, they came to the art show. We had wine and, and I made cupcakes and cookies and I got to talk to people. And I sold two paintings and five crochet hats. Yes, I crochet as well. And I had a big basket of hand crocheted winter hats that I've spent, you know, the last year or so crocheting since last winter, um, which was really cool. So I, I got to 
you know, have some of my work disseminated that way, some of my art. So if you are anywhere near Pasadena and would like to check out the show, it's going to be up through early December. Um, so just it's still up for a few more weeks. Um, and please do check it out. Tell me what you think. You can also find my art on Instagram um, at Sonali Kohatkar. So that is it. I am peacing out for the week. Hope you are enjoying these podcasts. If you do, leave a comment on my website, sonalikohatkar.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.